With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. There are nine cities that make up the Southern California area known as the Coachella Valley. Although most people just consider the valley the greater Palm Springs area. The cities include Palm Springs, Cathedral City, Rancho Mirage, Desert Hot Springs, Palm Desert, Indian Wells, La Quinta, Indio, and Coachella. The first time I traveled to the valley to work on this case, I had a hard time deciding what city I should stay in. On the map, they all seemed to be separated from one another. But in reality, On a quick trip from my hotel to get a cup of coffee, I unknowingly passed through three of these cities. They all just blend together. You'd have to read the street signs if you really cared to know which city you were actually in. The valley is a beautiful place, surrounded by the serene mountains of the high desert. The streets are lined with palm trees, and a golf course is never more than a couple blocks away. In its heyday, Palm Springs was the favorite hangout of Frank Sinatra and his Rat Pack. But today... It's a tame place, a great place to raise kids, go on a vacation, or even retire to. The valley is clean, sophisticated, and calm. But just outside the valley, or up the hill as the locals say, is a very different place. There, you'll find a small, unincorporated, I wouldn't call it a town, more like a village, or better yet, a community, called Pinion Pines. It's made up of dirt roads, not maintained by the county half of which are washed out and unpassable with most cars. It's a quaint place, but with the stories of fires, disappearances, UFOs, and murders, what it isn't is a quiet place. Welcome to Season 12. This is Episode 1, Up the Hill. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I first traveled to the Coachella Valley in November of last year. On morning one, I made the trip up the hill to Pinion Pines, and I was shocked at how quickly Highway 74 changed from the hustle and bustle of the big city into the remote hills of the high desert. One minute, you're sitting at a stoplight surrounded by juice bars and Starbucks, 
And just a few minutes later, you're white-knuckle navigating the switchbacks of a mountain road with not a single structure in sight. It took me about 35 minutes to get from the last stoplight in town to Pinion Drive, a poorly maintained dirt road heading off to the north from Highway 74. But getting to Pinion Drive was only half the battle. The first 17 miles of switchbacks were a cakewalk compared to the next three miles that were in store for me. The Pinion Pines community is made up of a maze of these dirt roads. If you just look at a map, and I'll provide one for you on our website to review, it wouldn't seem that difficult of an area to navigate. But the map only paints half the picture. Problem number one is that there's little to no cell service in the area, even now in 2022. So if your original route, the one you planned, is unpassable, you have no way to search up a new route. It's like the wild, wild west days of the 90s before we all had GPS at our fingertips. I spoke with a local firefighter while I was in the area, and I asked him about navigating Pinion Pines. He told me that it's nearly impossible to plan a route because you never know when you're going to encounter a four-foot-deep trench washed out in the middle of these roads. He said you just have to drive slow and be ready to back out and regroup. And he was absolutely right. On my first trip, I came across several of these washouts, some of which were so deep and sharp that I couldn't even navigate through them with my rented SUV, much less a fire truck. But as I worked my way through the community, I didn't really know what to make of it. Here and there, you would see some nice homes, but next to them might be someone living in a shipping container or a 1980s model camper with a roof built over it. Pinion Pines is a strange community, to say the least. Whether the residents are living in a teepee or a dome-shaped cabin, everyone has a fence around their property. And I immediately got the feeling I wasn't welcome there. Cars on the road might give me a half-hearted wave as I passed them, but the residents on their porches offered no such gesture. They just stared at me with that what-the-hell-are-you-doing-here look. It quickly became clear to me that folks didn't move out of the valley into this remote community because they were wanting to have potlucks with their neighbors. I tried canvassing the area, but quickly realized that that was going to be a wasted effort. Every homestead not only had a fence, but they also all had gated driveways. You couldn't get close enough to a house to knock on a door, and there were no buzzers or bells out by the road. It just seemed like they didn't care if you were there to see them. One woman did see me standing outside of her gate and shouted to me from her front porch. She wanted to know what I was doing there, and I told her that I was working on a story about a crime that occurred here in 2006. And she promptly told me that I was wasting my time to go away and that no one up there was going to talk to me. She was mostly right, but I did find someone who used to live in the community who was willing to talk to me. Carissa Farley agreed to meet with me at a restaurant she owns back down in the valley. She had moved into Pinion Pines back in the early 90s and has since moved back to civilization. But she was able to shed some light on the community that seems to be its own character in this story. There's some very nice people. And there's some very strange people who live down three and a half miles of dirt road for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, there were also some, there's also some very eccentric people. There was a guy that lived at the end of that dirt road in a trailer, and he never wore anything but a loincloth. Moccasins and a loincloth. True story. Mm -hmm. um, shirtless. Uh, I had a guy once, I was taking the baby when my 22-year-old son was a baby, I was taking him for a quad ride. One of the neighbors up there chased me. 
scared the hell out of me, chased me. I can tell you all kinds, all kinds of stories. It was a, it was an interesting period of my life. You have this community where people don't see anything, and some people want to be left alone. And then you have a local, the Palm Desert Sheriff's Office. Um, you have a police officer up there who, from all accounts, I've heard it from many places, was instead of traffic calming, <laughs> He was participating with the crazy. So everything I heard in the time that I was up there, everything from he walks around in night vision goggles and um, watches what's going on. And I'm not saying that's... Might, there might not have been a good purpose for it, but it's weird, and it makes the community uncomfortable. And... In the first murder, it was, and it sounds like you've heard bits and pieces of it. So, um, in those days, and I can tell you stories for days, um, in those days, mar growing marijuana was a thing. Mm -hmm. But it's not like now. It was a very serious offense. Mm -hmm. You could go to prison for growing marijuana mm -hmm. in those days. And a lot of people up there lived up there, there's a range of, of why people were up there. Whether they were nice guys that liked to smoke a little weed, normal functioning people who like to smoke a little weed and grow their own weed, to you know people like me that are like, ooh, wouldn't this be romantic to live in the country? Mm -hmm. To people who are like, I'm not sending my kids to public school, I'm gonna live in a teepee, you know, hippies, or to meth dealers that can't function anymore, that can't think clearly. Mm -hmm. it, it was the whole gamut. Carissa went on to describe dozens of stories to me. They ranged from UFO sightings to what appeared to be ninjas in the federal land behind the houses to a naked woman walking down the middle of the street. There's been assaults, murders, missing children, and more. And the police don't patrol these dirt roads, other than that off-duty deputy sheriff that you heard her mention, which we'll get to later. But it's a place for people to live who want to escape society. Most people in Pinion Pines generally keep to themselves. I was able to speak to one current resident who coincidentally was the first person on the scene with a crime that shocked this community to its core back in 2006. Tim Summerley lives in one of the very few homes in the community that isn't completely enclosed by a fence. He informed me later that I might want to think twice about pulling in anyone's driveway like I did his. But lucky for me, Tim was pretty forgiving. He actually invited me inside to chat. Up here in this community, if you recognize a person's car, that's as good as recognizing the person. And, and you put sure. the person in the car because you pass on the streets a lot. The houses are, are uh, uh, separate, as you've seen. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a sometimes a great deal of distance and sometimes just you know, quite a bit of space uh, between them. So um, some people have a close relationship with people in the community. I have a close relationship with maybe four people here. Mm -hmm. That's it. Uh, and my wife is much more sociable than I am, granted. But um, it, it's just, it just seems to me, from my point of view, that's the sort of nature of relationships here. 
Before I begin to share the story of the triple homicide that occurred in Pinion Pines on September 17, 2006, you first need to understand where the crime occurred. The Pinion Pines community consists of about three and a half miles of dirt roads. The far back or north border is created by Alpine Road, which runs east and west. Our crime scene is located at 68550 Alpine, the home of Vicki Friedley. It's all the way in the back of the community, and at the time, there were only two other homes on that road, one to the east and one to the west, and neither were even close to the Friedley house. So the crime scene is smack dab in the center of that road, which is relevant because what that means is that there's literally zero drive-by traffic at the Friedley house. The only reason to be on that road, in front of that house, is because you're going to that house. It's about as secluded as you can get without another building in sight. The Friedley House was on the north side of the road. It was located on a one-acre plot of land that bordered the San Bernardino National Forest on the backside. I'm going to do my best to paint this picture for you, but it's definitely a good idea to go to the website and look at the maps and photos. So, to get to the crime scene from the valley, you would take Highway 74 from the south end of Palm Desert. It's a windy road complete with switchbacks as you ascend the mountain. Approximately 17 miles later, you would turn off the pavement onto Pinion Road. Then, depending on the day and road conditions, you would navigate through a couple miles of dirt roads until you reached the very back of the Pinion Pines community. There, you turn onto Alpine Road and bump your way to the isolated crime scene. The driveway is unpaved and it winds its way back to the rear of the one-acre property where the Friedley house sits nestled into the hills in the pinion pine trees. And behind the house is nothing. And I mean nothing. About a half a mile back behind the house, you see a small range of mountains. And in between the peaks and the house is just desert. Nothing but rocks, sand, cacti, creosote bushes, and a few young pine trees. Most of the larger trees were burned up years earlier in a wildfire. September 17, 2006 was a quiet night, as most are in Pinion Pines. And when I say quiet, I mean a type of quiet that most people have never experienced. There are no street lights, no traffic, no close neighbors. Just the sound of chirping crickets, the occasional distant howl of a coyote. The sun set that night at 6.49 p.m., and moonrise didn't occur until the early hours of the morning. So, by 7.40 p.m., it was dark. Really dark, with the sky illuminated by nothing but the stars. And about two hours after that darkness set in, about 300 yards away, just down the hill a bit, on San Carlo Drive, Tim and Araceli Summerly were headed to bed for the night when they looked out their bedroom window and saw one of the most terrifying sights imaginable for anyone who lives in such a remote and dry location. Fire. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tim was kind enough to invite me into his home as he recounted that horrific Sunday night. First, he walked me back into his bedroom and showed me the window that he and his wife looked out of when they saw the fire. The dispatch records show that this occurred at around 9.45 p.m. It was about 9, 9.45 or 8.45, something like that. It was dark. Yeah. And we used to go to bed a lot earlier than that. I don't know why it was, why we went. We used to be in bed by 7 or 7.30, maybe 8 at the mm-hmm. latest. But it was later that evening. I guess that's not too far out of range, 8.45, something like that. Yeah. Walking in, preparing for bed... And uh, both of us read, so we were just going to go in and read. Mm-hmm. And we noticed a fire. As soon as we noticed a fire, somebody called 911. Mm-hmm. I don't remember whether it was myself or my wife, probably my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got in her car and drove over, which is one, two streets over, and down about, well, you've been there, about what? Two, three hundred yards. We went right out here. This parks your car right here, right here. Turned right, went up to the intersection at Chillin. Turned left right. to Alpine. Turned left again to get down to the property. Gotcha. Yeah. Now let me add that uh, when we were up there, when we were traveling up there, I don't believe either one of us noticed that our neighbor next door, who has since died, mm-hmm. was following us up there along. His name is Jim Ellis, but okay. he's no longer here. So. We were in our vehicle, and he followed us in his. Uh, my wife uh, stayed at the street. Jim stayed with my wife because he was concerned about the propane tank, wherever it might have been. Right. You know, and the fire. But your wife was in the car with you from here, rode yes. up there. Okay, yes, gotcha. yes. We drove together in her car. I believe it was her car because that's where she usually parks it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we wanted to get up there as quickly as possible to see whether or not it was a fire, if anybody needed any help. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... Be, well, I, I can't say for sure. I, I think it's probable that she called 911 because I don't recollect speaking with the fireman until we were up there. Yeah, I think that's what it, I, I think that's what the record reflects yeah. is that she okay. called. Like you had gone out maybe and she called 911 and then you guys got in the car and then. Yeah, that sounds right. That's mm-hmm. as good as anything, really. Right. Yeah. Um, so once once you pulled up there, you parked your vehicles on the street. On the street, on the um, south side of the street. Facing west, southwest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and so what did you do from there? Um, well, I, I suppose, I don't recall, but I suppose we had a very short conversation. At that point, uh, Jim said that he was, uh, my, my neighbor said that he was uh, disinclined to go up to the house mm-hmm. because he was concerned about the propane tank. Now, back up just a second and, and look at what we're looking at. The, there's a, it was a, a, a pretty peaked roof, and out of a vent, what looked like a vent, at, right at the junction, right under the beam, mm-hmm. uh, there were flames that were coming out. Okay. Now, I'm the son of a fireman, and 
I know almost nothing about it, but it looked, did not look to me as though the house was consumed. It looked mm-hmm. to me as though the fire was in its initial stages. Mm-hmm. It also looked to me like any danger to myself was minimal, mm-hmm. if any at all. Wherever the tank was, it had to be separate from the house by any distance. So I didn't feel as though it was any threat to myself. Jim thought otherwise, fine, I, you know, I defer to that, but I didn't have any compunction about um, going up to see if anyone uh, needed some help because it, we could see that it was a fire at that time. And the flames, as I say, were coming out of this vent or very small window up there. Which was at the kind of the peak of the garage, the front of the garage. Uh, no, it, it wasn't. Well, let, let's see now. Uh, if the house, if this were the house, the garage is out front, the house, the roof peaked uh-huh. like that. And then there was this vent or window right beneath the, the ridge beam. Wherever the ridge okay. beam would be. So not the peak of the garage, but the peak no, of the house. the house, correct. Because it's always above and back from the garage. Yes. Okay. Yes. I don't remember running up to the house, but I can't think that in a situation like that, I would be the person who would walk up. So I'll just say I ran up to the house um, and saw that it was fires again. And I shouted, is anybody home? Do you need some help? Can we help you? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I very shortly after I shouted that, and there was no response, um, I looked in through an open door in the garage, as I recall. That's that vivid memory, mental uh-huh. image. An open garage door through the garage into an open door into the house, like a utility entrance to the garage. Right. right? You'd park your car and then go walk in the house. Exactly. Yeah. And that, as far as I could tell, was a closed area. So the garage came off, the garage as a structure would be like a three-wall structure mm-hmm. adjacent to the house. It wasn't separate from the house, as far as I could see. Right, that's and right. And I think that's the way it is. I looked right straight through the garage into the house, open garage door, open house door, mm-hmm. right? I could see that a light was on, and I'm about... 75, 80% sure that it was a, a, an incandescent light, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and other than natural light. It wasn't a fire light because I didn't see any flickering. If it was fire, maybe fire does that. I don't know that much, but it sure didn't look like it. Mm-hmm. So that would tell me in hindsight that, again, I didn't see a danger immediate. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that. I didn't notice that. Now... That's when it looked a little hinky. But why is the door open? Well, maybe they're rushing here, rushing there, but no one answered, right? What Tim saw next was something out of a horror movie or even a nightmare. Something no one could ever be prepared to see. At that time, I panned a little bit to the right. I don't know why. Uh, a little bit to my right, which would be to the north. And I noticed that there was either a mannequin or a body in a wheelbarrow. Mm-hmm. So that the let's let's what, what we know now it was a body. Let's say the the body's um, uh, small of the back was towards the um, the tip end of the wheelbarrow, mm-hmm. not where the handles are, but where you would pour cement or rock or whatever you had in the wheelbarrow. It was positioned like that. I don't know where the legs were. I don't I don't remember seeing the legs. Doesn't mean they weren't there or anything. Mm-hmm. I just don't remember seeing. I remember fixating on that. And the reason I say mannequin was because there was no hair, and it looked, uh, that was my take on it. The hands were in, uh, the hands were drawn up, uh, 
like in um, in a in an image of supplication. Mm-hmm. You know, is that clear? Yeah. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, that's that's what I saw, and I remember thinking, this doesn't seem right, and and it's like, okay, maybe. Maybe somebody's getting ready for Halloween in September, but that's kind of a long shot, mm-hmm. and it's really an odd sort of thing. But maybe you're moving them in hindsight. Maybe you're moving a mannequin or whatever thing like that. But then I thought, no, it, it, there's something hinky about this. Mm-hmm. So then is when I went back, and I don't remember whether I ran or didn't, but I'm assuming that I would. Ran back to my wife and my neighbor. And told them what I saw and said, "This this doesn't look right. If there's a problem there, this is now a crime scene, mm-hmm. and we should be careful." Now, I don't remember thinking about is there someone there or not. I don't remember that, but I distinctly remember looking through an open garage door, through the, an open house door, an entry door, not an, an external one, but an interior entry door mm-hmm. into the house, and seeing a light on. And what I took to be a stairway on the right-hand side going up. It was a two-story house. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you could see the stairway that was in the house. In the house, going correct. Going up to the second correct. story. Correct. And so there was no flames coming out, blowing out that door or anything no. at that no. point. No, uh-uh. no. It just looked like somebody left the lights on to me. Mm-hmm. And in, in hindsight, again, it's like I didn't fix on it. This is the impression that I have at this distance in time. Uh, and a, a very short observation at my point, but I'm, I'm pretty pretty sure of that. So the, at that point, the only thing, only flames you saw would have been the ones coming out of Correct. The, were they, when you guys got there, were they still coming out of the peak yes. there? And nowhere else at that point? Not that I saw. If they were coming out the uh, north side of the house, I wouldn't have seen it. Mm-hmm. If they were coming out the west side of the house, I wouldn't have seen it. And if they were coming out of the uh, south side of the house, I think I might have seen it. I think I might have been able to see it because I would imagine, though I don't know, that there are windows that are facing mm-hmm. to the south. Right. And uh, what you now know was a, was a body in the, in the wheelbarrow. Were there any flames in the wheelbarrow? I don't recall any. I... I, uh, I no, I, I don't recall any. At this point in time, mm-hmm. I think that there is a transcript. I've been interviewed four or five times. Right. I think that there is a transcript of an earlier interview where I'm, I'm assuming my memory would be much clearer, where I said that there were there were like um, I'm not sure what they're called. When when uh, when heat rises, it refracts light waves, mm-hmm. and it looks kind of wavy, right? Mm-hmm. Like a like a mirage effect, like that. I think I said that I noted that. I'm telling you that for your inv- for your reference, but I, I, at this point in time, I don't remember whether I did or didn't see that. I don't recall that. Okay. But I remember someone referencing that maybe at the trial, and I don't, I don't know what I said, but in honesty, I, I, at this point in time, I don't remember whether it was or wasn't, but I do not remember seeing any flames uh, coming from the body. Okay. And you, you, you mentioned when you were looking at the body that it looked like a mannequin maybe because there was no hair. Correct. Thing was, and what it was the body still, looked like? Was it and black? And it was fixed. Right. It, was it black and charred? Yeah. No. Not that I could see, but I was a good good distance from it. That I was f- at least from here to the back of the house and maybe further, which is what, 
35 feet. Okay, so you didn't at least walk right that. up to it. No, I did not go up to it. Not when I saw that. Uh, a, it's a fire. I don't know how extensive it is. It doesn't look that extensive. I don't see any indication that I'm in danger, but that looks odd. Carissa, who we heard from earlier, was on the scene that night as well. This is what she remembered. I heard an explosion. I jumped up. I don't see it in my immediate vicinity, and by the time I saw where it was coming from, it was 30, 40 feet straight up in the air. It was the biggest single column of flames I've ever seen in my life. And of course, your heart's in your throat, and you're like, oh my God, alert. So, you know, my family's up. We, we, uh, drive over because it's far enough that it's a drive, not a walk. Um, we drive over, and by the time we got there, there are a number of residents that were, there was nothing you could do. We were all out there, and everyone's asking, Do you think, you know, by then we're talking to each other, everybody's kind of on adrenaline. It's dark. Um, we were already in bed. I don't know what time it was, but we were already in bed. So um, everyone's starting to buzz and miss curiosity here. I'm counting the vehicles. So everyone's saying, well, I think Becky's out of town. And I'm like, oh, no, her car's here. Carissa was right. Becky's car was in the driveway. Becky was the 18-year-old daughter of Vicki Friedley, the owner of the house. And it was Becky's body that Tim Summerlee saw in that wheelbarrow. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. According to the testimony of firefighters on the scene that night, 18-year-old Becky's body was still burning in the wheelbarrow when they arrived. One of the firemen had to extinguish the body with a hose. Tim doesn't remember what drew his attention to the body, but I suspect that it was the smoldering flames. See, the wheelbarrow was located about 70 feet away from the house. There were no outside lights, and there were trees between the burning house and the body, meaning he wouldn't have been able to see it in the dark unless it was creating its own light. Tim and I actually drove up to the crime scene to take some measurements after our interview. The house is gone and only a concrete foundation remains. But Tim positioned himself where he was standing and I was able to locate the position of the wheelbarrow using the police diagram. Becky's body was located 70 feet northeast of the back door of the house, which is about 60 feet away from where Tim was standing. It was an awful scene and firefighters suspected right away that things may get even worse. Becky's car wasn't the only one in the driveway. There were actually six vehicles parked outside the Friedley house. There was an old Ford Bronco parked in front of the garage that didn't seem to be operational. It was under a tarp. But a few feet away from that sat a Mercury Villager minivan that did appear to be in use. Then there was a Ford Mustang that was also under a tarp. And then there was a the car Becky was driving that night, which was actually her sister's car, a Scion. 
and it was in fact parked on the scene along with her own Infinity and an Astrovan. So the fire department was looking at a house that was fully engulfed in flames by the time they arrived and four working vehicles parked outside. They easily located Becky's body, but where was everyone else? The house ended up burning to the ground. Only parts of the garage remained standing. The fire department turned the scene over to the Riverside County Sheriff's Department during the mop-up phase. With Becky's body burning in the wheelbarrow, this was most certainly a crime scene. And then, at about 3 a.m., as crews were sifting through the soaking wet rubble of the house, they found another body. And then another. In what used to be the laundry room area of the house, fire crews found the charred remains of who was later determined to be 53-year-old Vicki Friedley, Becky's mother. Just a few feet away in the kitchen area, they found the remains who was later determined to be Vicky's live-in boyfriend, 55-year-old John Hayward. Both bodies were burned so badly that they were hardly recognizable even as human. Their extremities were just gone, burned away. Now, had Vicky and John been the only two victims, the investigators may have assumed that this was simply a house fire that claimed two victims. But Becky's body burning in a wheelbarrow 70 feet away from the house left police with only one possibility. This was no accident. It was a triple homicide. So what on earth could have happened here? Usually I can look at a crime scene and at least have a basic idea of what happened. But this scene makes absolutely no sense. The autopsies revealed later that both Vicky and John had been shot, but with two different guns. We'll get into all that later. But suffice it to say that the autopsies confirmed what we already knew. This was murder, plain and simple. And if you just look at Vicky and John, it would be easy to see what happened. Two people entered the house, shot them both, and then lit the house on fire to cover their tracks. That part makes perfect sense. If the house burns down, it's possible that no one would ever even know that a crime occurred. But then you have Becky, left outside of the house, in a wheelbarrow no less, which would have made it easy for her to have been moved into the house. Her cause of death was deemed undetermined, but what we do know is that there was no attempt to hide her body. Sure, it was lit on fire, but her legs were hanging out of the wheelbarrow. They didn't burn and they never would have. Her body made it painfully obvious, even to Tim Summerlee, that this was a crime scene and not an accident. So why go through all the trouble of concealing the crime scene if you're going to leave one of the victims outside for anyone to see? These are the questions that we're going to try to answer during the course of this season. This case needs a new set of eyes investigating it more than any other case I've ever come across. We start that process where we always start, with victimology. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an 
NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yo. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.